I'm Nim, and this is A Spoonful of Medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. On today's show, we're taking a look at hemorrhagic disease of the newborn, specifically hemorrhagic disease of the newborn related to vitamin K deficiency. This is something that it's good to know about if you're on a paediatric term or a neonatal term. It's also something that we often counsel parents about. So let's take some time to look at vitamin K deficiency in the neonate and the resulting hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. Let's go. Let's start off with a case. You're asked to come to the ED to see a two-day-old infant who has been brought in by their parents due to concerns about bleeding. This baby was born at term at home where he was delivered by a midwife. The pregnancy itself was unremarkable without any complications. His mum is otherwise healthy and doesn't take any medications herself. His APGAR scores were 9 at 1 minute and 9 at 5 minutes. He is completely breastfed and has been feeding well and has not required any healthcare professional visiting since birth. His parents tell you that they declined both the hepatitis B vaccination and vitamin K shot at birth. On examination, this baby's vital signs are within normal limits. However, you do notice that they are slightly pale. There is some old dried blood that you noticed at the nair and a nappy of a recent bowel motion can see blood within the stool. Also of concern to you is that the umbilical stump seems to be oozing with blood. Reassuringly, the neurological examination for this baby is normal. Your colleagues in the ED are great and they've already sent off some bloods. Liver function is normal, as is the full blood count. Coagulation studies, on the other hand, are grossly deranged. The INR is 7 and the APTT is above 200. An ultrasound of the head does not show an intracranial hemorrhage. Your primary concern here is hemorrhagic disease of the newborn related to vitamin K deficiency. After some counselling to the parents about the need for vitamin K and the importance in preventing of bleeding, they agreed to administer one shot of IM vitamin K. A repeat of this baby's coagulation studies show marked improvement with resolution of the INR to 1.5 as well as the APTT to within normal range. This baby is admitted for some observation in the paediatric unit and is discharged two days later well. Good job, another life saved. But now let's backtrack a little bit and take a look at what hemorrhagic disease of the newborn is, or in other names, vitamin K deficiency bleeding, or VKDB. First, let's take a look at what vitamin K is and what it does. Vitamin K is a fat-soluble vitamin. Its main function is in the gamma carboxylation of coagulation factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. Or in other words, it activates these. Without these coagulation factors in circulation, there's a risk of defective clotting, and hence the risk of bleeding in a newborn who is vitamin K deficient. On blood tests, this equates to an increased bleeding tendency characterized by decreased activity of the intrinsic clotting pathway, which prolongs the APTT time, 
as well as decreased activity of the extrinsic clotting pathway, which prolongs the PT and the INR. In adults, vitamin K is acquired through the diet, but it's also synthesized by gut bacteria. Newborns, on the other hand, have minimal vitamin K reserves in their liver during the time of delivery because there's insufficient placental transfer, and they're unable to synthesize vitamin K due to a sterile gut. So this all culminates into a vitamin K deficiency and hence a bleeding tendency. Additionally, breast milk itself is deficient in vitamin K, so it can't really be used as a source of vitamin K for a neonate. Now, there are three types of vitamin K deficiency-related bleeding in the neonate. There is early vitamin K deficiency, classic vitamin K deficiency, and then late vitamin K deficiency-related bleeding. In early-onset vitamin K deficiency, this is seen in the first day of life. And the reason or cause of this is usually maternal medications or drugs that interfere with vitamin K levels or absorption. These include medications such as phenobarbital, phenytoin, warfarin, rifampicin, and isoniazid. The baby here can present with a cephalohematoma, significant subgaleal bleed, intracranial bleed, gastrointestinal bleeding, bleeding from the umbilical stump, or intra-abdominal bleeding. This type of vitamin K deficiency-related bleeding is actually quite rare, and it's prevented by the avoidance of high-risk medications in pregnancy. Mothers who need to take these medications in pregnancy can be given a high dose of vitamin K before birth, and then postnatally, the infant should be treated with IM vitamin K. The second type of vitamin K deficiency-related bleeding is the classic type. And this is the one that we associate with babies that haven't had vitamin K just after delivery. While the incidence of this classic type of vitamin K deficiency related bleeding is rare, this is only because most newborns actually get a vitamin K shot at delivery. In places where vitamin K shot isn't available, vitamin K deficiency related bleeding is far more common and can happen in up to 2% of babies who haven't had vitamin K. In fact, the CDC says that newborns who do not get a vitamin K shot are actually 81 times more likely to develop severe bleeding than those who get the shot. So how do these type of babies present? Well, they classically present within the two to seven days of life with hemorrhagic disease manifestations. And this can be seen in terms of gastrointestinal bleeding, bleeding from the umbilical sump, or injection sites, they can also have intracranial bleeds that can be catastrophic and life-threatening. The CDC quotes that one out of every five babies with vitamin K deficiency bleeding can die. So as you can probably tell, it's something to never take lightly. The cause of this is vitamin K deficiency and babies who are exclusively Breastfed are at increased risk of this because they don't have vitamin K in breast milk. This classic type of vitamin K deficiency bleeding is prevented by parenteral vitamin K delivery at birth. Oral vitamin K can also be delivered, but it's less effective than IM vitamin K. 
Finally, we have a late onset vitamin K deficiency related bleeding. And this usually presents within one to six months of life and is manifested by intracranial bleeding, gastrointestinal bleeding, bleeding from injection sites, or even intrathoracic bleeds. This type of vitamin K deficiency related bleeding is also very rare. Its incidence is about 1 in every 15,000 to 1 in every 2,000 births. This type of vitamin K deficiency related bleeding is usually caused by cholestasis or malabsorption of vitamin K due to conditions such as biliary atresia, cystic fibrosis and hepatitis. It's prevented by parenteral use of high dose of vitamin K during these periods of cholestasis or malabsorption. And the incidence really depends on the primary disease. So now let's take a look at the history and examination of a baby that you suspect may have VKDB. In terms of history, a medication history in pregnancy is important to see if the mother has had medications such as anticonvulsants, anti-tubecular drugs, warfarin or salicylates. Gestation of the baby is also important to know because preterm babies are at a higher risk of having vitamin K deficiency bleeding. Also ask if the baby is breastfed or bottle fed, as bottle or formula fed infants are at a slightly lower risk due to fortified feedings with essential vitamins and minerals. Also, the delivery of vitamin K at birth is important to know about, because if babies haven't received vitamin K at birth, they are at 81 times the risk of developing vitamin K deficiency related bleeding. In terms of the examination, we're looking out for signs of bleeding. This can be in the form of a Keffler hematoma. The baby may have neurological signs. This would raise significant concern about intracranial bleeding. Think about intrathoracic bleeding such as hemoptysis or associated respiratory distress and desaturation. There can be intra-abdominal bleeding such as melina or hematemesis. They can be bleeding from the skin or injection sites. They can be bleeding from mucous membranes like the gum and the nose. You can also have bleeding from the umbilical stump. Recognition of an intracranial bleed is paramount in these babies. And this can present as a floppy neonate, someone who's lethargic, feeding difficulties, bulging fontanelles, decreased respiratory rate, altered consciousness, convulsions or significant pallor. So, what are the investigations for VKDB? Well, firstly, we'll divide it into bloods and imaging. In terms of blood tests, we want to take a full blood count because this will show us platelets and typically in VKDB, these will be normal. We also want to know what the hemoglobin is because in a baby this young, it should be normal. Any decrease should raise concerns about significant hemorrhage. Next, we want coagulation studies, and these are characterized by an increased INR due to reduced factor 7, an increased PT due to reduced factor 7 as well, as well as increased APTT due to reduced factor 2, factor 9, and factor 10. The fibrinogen should be normal. Protein induced by vitamin K agonist, or PIVKA, can also be tested. This is a protein that is induced by vitamin K absence. So, any amount of PIVKA is abnormal and indicates a vitamin K deficiency. 
Next, let's take a look at imaging. And really, imaging is used to look for any signs of bleeding in the body cavities, such as the intrathoracic cavity or intraabdominal cavities. An ultrasound of the head can be done to see if there's any intracranial bleeds. If there is, an MRI should be done next to better characterize it. You can also get x-rays of the chest to see if there's any pulmonary involvement. Before we take a look at the management of VKDB, let's just take a quick look at the potential differentials. Differentials include an accidental or non-accidental injury in a neonate that is presenting with significant bruising. We also need to think about clotting factor deficiencies such as haemophilia A or haemophilia B. A baby who is septic and has disseminated intravascular coagulation can also present with bleeding tendencies. A baby who is thrombocytopenic can also present with bleeding and this can be caused by autoimmune causes, alloimmune causes, can be idiopathic or can be from sepsis. And finally, if you have a baby that has an isolated bleed from the gastrointestinal tract, anatomical or vascular anomalies should also be considered. The management of VKDB is the prompt administration of vitamin K to the infant and then further investigation as for the cause of the disease as well as looking for any bleeding into body cavities. In cases of severe life-threatening bleeding, immediate blood transfusions plus or minus fresh frozen plasma can be used to reduce the bleeding. In those with significant intracranial bleeds, prompt discussion with neurosurgery is indicated to see if there needs to be urgent neurosurgical decompression or shunting to relieve the increased intracranial pressure associated with the bleed. Finally, let's finish off with some FAQs that you may be asked about when you are counselling a parent about giving their child vitamin K. The first question may be that vitamin K deficiency related bleeding is quite rare, so why should I give my baby a vitamin K shot? Well, vitamin K deficiency related bleeding, like we talked about earlier, is uncommon because so many babies now get vitamin K at delivery. The risk of a baby developing vitamin K deficiency related bleeding is 81 times that of a baby who has received vitamin K. Additionally, vitamin K deficiency related bleeding has a significant mortality link to it, with one out of every five babies dying from the condition. So, vitamin K at birth is incredibly important to have and is what is recommended medically. Another question you may be asked is that vitamin K shots or the dose in the shot is quite high for a baby. Does it need to be that much? In response to this, the dose of vitamin K in the shot is high compared to the daily requirement of vitamin K. But remember, babies don't have much vitamin K themselves. And so really we're trying to supply the vitamin K instantaneously to them, but also give them extra vitamin K so it can be stored in the liver. This vitamin K that is stored in the liver is then released slowly over the next two to three months. This provides a steady source of vitamin K until an infant has another source of vitamin K, for example, from their diet, as well as from an increasing gut microbiome. Some mothers may ask if they can increase vitamin K through the breast milk by themselves eating different foods or by taking multivitamins that contain vitamin K. 
Here, we encourage all mums to eat healthy and do the best for their own health. Although eating foods that are high in vitamin K or taking vitamin K supplements can slightly increase the levels of vitamin K in breast milk, neither can increase levels in breast milk enough to provide all the vitamin K a baby needs. So, breast milk, even from mothers supplementing with vitamin K in other sources, can't provide enough vitamin K to suffice for the baby's needs. Finally, a question you may be asked is, does vitamin K given as a neonate increase the risk of childhood cancers? Earlier, there was some research that showed a potential link. However, more recent studies that are more thorough have shown no clear association. And it's thought that these early studies were actually a correlation bias and not causation. So ultimately, vitamin K does not increase the risk of childhood malignancy. And with that, it's time for a recap. So hemorrhagic disease of the newborn or vitamin K deficiency related bleeding in the newborn is due to a deficiency and you guessed it, vitamin K. Less vitamin K means we have less activated factors 2, 7, 9 and 10 and less of these factors means that babies have a tendency to bleed. And bleeding tendencies can be manifested in forms of GI bleeding, intracranial bleeding, intrathoracic bleeding, bleeding cutaneously from injection sites, or mucosal bleeding. There are three types of vitamin K deficiency related bleeding. The first is early vitamin K deficiency related bleeding that presents in the first day of life and is usually due to maternal medications that limit the amount of vitamin K an infant receives. The second is classic vitamin K deficiency related bleeding and this presents in two to seven days after birth and is due to vitamin K lack of administration at delivery. And finally, we have late onset vitamin K deficiency that can present anywhere from one to six months of age and this is usually due to an underlying condition such as cholestasis or malabsorption. When assessing babies that we suspect to have vitamin K deficiency related bleeding, a thorough history and examination to look for risk factors as well as signs of bleeding is paramount. Investigations for babies include a full blood count, coagulation studies, and we can consider a protein induced by vitamin K agonist. Imaging is also very important to detect bleeding such as an ultrasound of the head to detect intracranial bleeds. The differentials for a baby presenting with a bleeding tendency include non-accidental injury, clotting factor deficiencies or haemophilia, disseminated intravascular coagulation, thrombocytopenia, as well as isolated gastrointestinal bleeding causes. The management for vitamin K deficiency related bleeding is a prompt administration of vitamin K. Ultimately, the best way to manage vitamin K deficiency related bleeding is preventing it in the first place. So thorough parental education as well as counseling antenatally is very important so that vitamin K deficiency related bleeding and its sequelae are prevented. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, 
along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.